welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres dominant, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with three seven-one trifix and ENFP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome, everyone. I am really excited to be interviewing Natalie uh, today. And Natalie, can you go ahead and say your last name for me? I'm afraid I'm going to mispronounce it. Zolotariva. There you go. Okay. Uh, Natalie is Russian, so that's why I was a little bit nervous to pronounce that. Um, but she was in my Shift Enneagram class with me this last year. And she was actually one of the first people that I connected with because she just had so many great insights on our Facebook page. And I reached out and I'm like, I want to talk to you. So we had this great conversation. We continued on in the class for the rest of the year. And like many of us that were in this class, this was really our opportunity to launch into our own Enneagram offering. So um, Natalie has been a nurse in the ICU for most of her life. Um, she and I are both around 50. We'll just put it there. We've uh, both been married. We've both raised children and we've both had very interesting experiences as we have been traversing. What is it to be a professional woman and, you know, sort of redefining ourselves here in midlife. And Natalie is starting her own Enneagram coaching service now called Mind Your Wellness. And we will have contact information for her in the show notes. I know that she would love to have the opportunity to work with anybody who hears this interview and wants to receive some of her gifts. So without further ado, Natalie, would you go ahead? I always like to start by talking about how you discovered the Enneagram. Uh, was it easy to know what type you were or did you have to find your way to it? And also your relationship to the instinctual drives. How did you come up with your stack, which is sexual, social, self-pres blind? So Natalie, what's your story? How did you come to understand your own type and stack? Thank you so much. Thank you for your introduction. Thank you for inviting me on this podcast. I'm very excited. Um, I discovered the Enneagram about seven years ago. Somebody mentioned it and I opened the book or I don't even remember what I opened, but I looked through the descriptions of the types and I knew I was a type nine right away. So the typing was, in, you know, just instant. But then I realized that type nine is in the middle of the angry triad. And I'm like, wait a minute, I don't ever get angry. Uh, this must be wrong. <laughs> and then, of course, I started reading the descriptions and basically they said eight is angry. They will like let you know, punch you on the nose or whatever. One, when they're angry, they think it's not cool and they're going to suppress their anger. But nine is going to say, oh, I never get angry. And uh, this is where I knew that I had work to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, I love that. I uh, Listeners know that I was married to a nine for 17 years and I never saw him get angry for the 17 mm. years that we were married. Um, I have subsequently watched him get very angry with me. But, um, you know, it takes a while, I think, for nines to get angry. So I'm just curious, um, do you feel connected to your anger now? Do you experience it now or is that still a growth edge? 
I do. This was actually my uh, my project at the end of our course. Mm. Uh, what was happening to me before, I did experience anger every now and then, like maybe twice a year. And I call it a volcano eruption. So there would be, uh, especially in close relationships, like I, I still, I would say, never get angry with people who are not close to me. At least not in that in that volatile way. Um, and uh, somebody who is close to me, they would do things that normally would get somebody angry. But I would just explain them, be like, oh, I understand why he did that. I, I, I can see why this would not happen. No, I, I know why he did that. And I would totally feel that it's okay until this one more event where all of a sudden it's not okay. And now I'm just like, uh, <laughs> forget it. Uh, yeah. Now everything comes up. And I actually kind of enjoy it because uh, it's just like so empowering. And wow. now we are definitely, there's no pretense that we are together. You know, we are definitely like fighting. So there's nothing to save and just all kinds of stuff is coming out. Yeah. Um, it was not good for relationships. Now, you said that you met your ex-husband when you were 13 years old. Is that right? Yes. Wow. And you guys got married at what age? At seven. Well, I was 17. He was 30. Oh, okay. So tell me a little bit about how you met. And, you know, I, I'm just wondering if things are a little bit different in Russia than they are in the United States today for many of our listeners. And, you know, how, how did that work in your culture? How did you meet? Uh, we were... Uh doing pistol shooting <laughs> oh wow uh and he was uh, a, a sort of famous marks marksman and uh, i was a beginner and uh, i was changing targets for him in the trenches <laughs> so you were 13 and he was 26 when you met yes mm -hmm. okay wow and when did it turn romantic how long after you met uh very soon actually he was uh, uh he was he became my coach he was interested in me and uh, I guess my sexual instinct got me in trouble. Yeah. And I assume you were already through puberty at that time. Like I didn't hit puberty until mm -hmm. I was 14. So um, you were, you know, biologically a woman at that time. Yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting to me because I think when we meet sexual dominant women, that there's something about their sexuality that oozes as soon as you hit puberty. Does that resonate for you? Like, do you, did you always feel sexy? No, I didn't. I didn't know that I felt sexy. Uh huh. And, uh, and then there was, a, it's like there are times in my life when all of a sudden I become more attractive to men for whatever okay. reason. Yeah. That was one of those times. Yeah. But throughout your life, you know when men are attracted to you like you feel yes. that charge yes. that hook and you're like ah oh, here it is mm -hmm. yeah and you knew mm -hmm. it at 13 like that's what's amazing to me like we i think that instincts are born into us so yes for listeners i do believe that a sexual dominant woman like cues right into that potentially not necessarily i mean we but but I, that's just something that i'm really curious and nines like nines are sensuous. I mean, all the listeners know that, you know, I've had four significant relationships. Three of them are with nines. I mean, there is something about nines that carry this sensuality. And when the sexual energy is prominent within the nine structure, yeah, I don't know what it is. How would you describe it? 
No, I feel like I'm very sensual. sensual okay. yeah. So you know all of that. Yeah. And you're a mm-hmm. salsa dancer, aren't you? Yes. I mean, come on. Yes. And like, I, I, you know, like sometimes Russ, uh, Russ says that nines uh, um, within, within close relationships, they will be like, uh, um, do you see how sexy I am? Do you see yeah. how great I am? You know, and I'm like, oh, my God, how does he know? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I I love it. I do feel sexy. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That is sexual dominance right there. I love it. And I love that you'll name it. I mean, um, what you're bringing to mind, did you hear of the musical six that's about King Henry, the eighth six wives? Have you heard of this musical? No. Okay. Well, I'm going to invite listeners to see it. I'll invite you to see it uh, or download the music and there is a song saying by each of the six wives and wife number five, who also got beheaded like Anne Boleyn. Um, she has a song about how her sexuality emerged at 13 with a music instructor, similarly mm-hmm. to your target instructor. And like, uh, you know, her whole life was really about men who became captivated with her. And this sexual instinct is really what ended up, making her queen one day with Henry VIII. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'll just invite people to check that out. But that's another song where you just see a woman who is sexual dominant and she knows it and other people know it. And there's just a certain vibe. So thanks for sharing that. Were your parents upset at all that this older guy was into their 13-year-old daughter? Yes, they were. They they. Well, that was never confirmed, but somebody reported this to the police because it is a, an offense in Russia, just like it is here. And we still don't know who it was, but um, my ex-husband thinks it was my mom. Okay. okay. Which did not help their relationship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And your ex-husband's an eight, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we want to believe what we know about eights based off of structure, they um, are not necessarily hung up on rules and what is considered quote unquote right or moral. It's sort of like, this is the woman I want and I'm going to marry her. And that's what happened. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so you got married at 17. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, when did you come from Russia to the United States? I was 20 years old and nine months pregnant. Oh, wow. And what brought you guys here? It was 1991 and uh, there was a coup in Russia. Mm-hmm. So Gorbachev was abducted, and uh, we didn't know what exactly was going on. And uh, it's kind of a long story because my ex-husband actually uh, happened to be in America at the time. And he was about to fly back to Russia that night and was staying with um, a very wealthy American couple. That's a whole other story how he met them. Um, But in the morning, uh, instead of driving him to the airport, they called him to watch TV and showed him the tanks in the streets of Moscow. And he didn't speak much English, uh, so um, he ended up staying and then uh, coming home several days later with an invitation for the two of us to come to America. Wow. And being an eight, he made this whole thing happen because I don't know how, but being nine months pregnant, I was able to, we got visas and, and just left the country and came to America. Wow. And what kind of work did you guys do when you arrived? Was it hard to get established or did that go okay? Um, we had a little bit of money, uh, which pretty much was spent on uh, on the delivery of the baby. Yeah. And, um, and then we moved to California where my sister was. 
And my ex-husband got a job uh, working for Gorbachev Foundation, uh, doing uh, delivering humanitarian aid to to Russia to the orphanages. And then when so did she, you do your nursing training? Was that here in the United States? You went to school. Um, I was a nurse. Uh, nothing is simple. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I did go to school in Russia, but um, when we were in California. I took the NCLEX and I passed, um, and we moved to New York a month after. New York State refused my Russian, did not accept my Russian education. So I ended up going back to school seven years later and uh, going to uh, getting a bachelor's degree here, and then several years later getting a master's degree. Yeah, and then you had a career as an ICU nurse, is that right? Yes, I worked as an ICU nurse for 21 years. Wow, yeah. Well, and uh, many people know that I'm an internal medicine doctor, and all I have to say is that ICU nurses are hardcore. Like, I um, had my experience with ICU nurses at the University of Pennsylvania and University of Chicago, and, you know, we were the the quote-unquote doctors, but we had, like, no idea what we were doing. And we would go into the ICU, and the nurse would be like, so do you want to look at that ventilator setting or how about maybe this medication? And you just always listened because the nurses knew 10 times more what was going on with the patients than these doctors in training. And the ICU nurses like would always blow my mind with how much you guys were handling. Is it, did you, did you know that? Like, is that what you identify with? Yeah, we, we were working really hard. We, I was not working at a teaching hospital, but, uh, the doctors always trusted us when we had um, a suggestion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My experience was always at teaching hospitals, and I think the patients are alive because of the ICU nurses, because you don't really want people learning on you in the ICU. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I have so much gratitude for all these ICU nurses are just flooding in front of my brain right now. And I'm like, thank you for helping me not fail because I'm a three and I wanted to look good. And if you didn't tell me what to do, it would have been awful. So... Oh, lots of gratitude. Wow. Well, and I'm even thinking about how ICU nursing is something someone who's sexual dominant would do because we sometimes talk about that sexual instinct is enjoying the charge and enjoying the, you know, excitement, the a little bit of drama. And that's pretty much what the ICU is, wouldn't you say? Yes. I never, before our conversation, I had never thought about uh, working in the ICU as the expression of a sexual instinct, but I have to agree with you. Yeah. 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 Well, and this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying like, what is your stack? You know, sometimes I'm talking to people who are younger and it can be harder to figure out because they're still setting up their life. But when you talk to people that are in midlife or older, you can look back onto how they lived their life and what choices they made. And their instinctual expression is kind of written all over it is what I'm starting to see. So many people sense my sexual instinctual energy now, but that's because it's something that I'm consciously working with. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you look back on my life, I mean, I became a primary care doctor so that I could move into the suburbs and raise four kids. You know, that's not exactly exciting. You know, like I've always had to create my own excitement and I built a life that can be kind of very regular, stale, vanilla. And then I've like done all this stuff to like infuse the sexual instinct in there when I remember. So it's just a little bit different in how we structured it. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, one of the fun things about this interview is that you and I have both had the opportunity to... Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of how would a nine say it? I mean, the way that it comes up for me, if I'm being brutally honest, is like, I haven't been awesome at relationships. You know, <laughs> I like, you know, have a few under my belt. Uh, the reason that I do this is because I'm sexual blind and I love talking to people about how did your relationship track go? And I just think we have so much to learn because I think some people end up married forever and are in the happily ever after camp. I think some people are married forever, but are sort of mating in captivity, which I will steal from Esther Perel, where it's just kind of like you stay together because you're together and it's the thing that you do. And uh, they definitely take that for better, for worse, seriously. And it often seems more worse than better. And then there are those people that don't stay in their relationships forever. And we have relational transitions and we have different things that we learn from all of our different relationships. So how long were you married to the husband that you married at 17? I think it was 25 years. Okay. Close to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a long time. Okay. So tell me a little bit about like what made the wheels come off the bus? Why aren't you guys still together? What happened there? Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to make a note that it's interesting to me that you, you are saying that you uh, have not been successful at relationships. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it's like a type three, like if you didn't stay in a relationship, that it's a failure. A hundred percent. And thank you for bringing that up because like I'm working on that. You know, my parents have been married for 53 years and, you know, they're an eight and a one couple and they're both also Myers-Briggs, they're ESTJs, which if you look at the ESTJ cognitive function, they sort of have like solidarity and friendship at the root of it, but they're mm -hmm. also both sexual blind and the hottest thing I saw between my parents was my dad giving my mom a peck on the cheek when he would come in or out of the house from work. Like, and mm -hmm. you know, at the end of a day, he might rub her feet while they both sat on opposite ends of the couch. But I mean, obviously <laughs> my sister and I are here. I mean, I know that they had a relationship, but no, I mean, PDA is just not a thing that happens in my family. And when people are, expressing romantic affection with each other. You know, after I left my 17 year marriage, I was with a Portuguese man mm -hmm. and you know, the Mediterranean culture is a lot more expressive and affectionate, which I discovered I actually love, but it was mm -hmm. a little awkward for my family. Like they were a little taken aback. It was a little shocking that he might walk through the kitchen and like smack my ass. Like that was just like, whoa, like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, like there are people here, you know, it was pretty crazy uh -huh. in my household. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So when you talk about that failure, I definitely was raised with the whole mentality, you know, also like my mom's parents, you know, my grandfather got my grandmother pregnant when she was 16 and he was 18 and he was about to go to West Point and he was very, very smart but he kind of did the right thing and didn't go to college and married my grandmother. And they had my mom and four more children. And he worked two jobs his whole life as a shoe salesman and selling insurance. And there was a lot of disappointment. And I would, you know, there were 
beautiful things about their relationship in our family, but there is definitely this tone of resentment on some level that grandpa didn't live the life he could have had if it hadn't gone this way. So in mm -hmm. my family, the sexual instinct is something that kills your dreams. So yeah. when I had my first boyfriend in high school after two and a half years, and after lots of conversation and, you know, making sure that this was a mutually desirable thing and we had condoms and we were like as safe as could be, my parents still lost their minds when they found out that we were, had become sexually active because the sexual instinct is what was the threat to the self-present mm -hmm. social world. So mm -hmm. in my family, it was always thought to be something very dangerous. And if you succumb to it, that's your own moral weakness because really life is about survival and it's about working and it's about the family structure and this whole like joy pleasure thing that the sexual instinct brings in. Like mm -hmm. you can have that after all of the other stuff is completely taken care of and it definitely should not disrupt marriages or family structures. So yeah, I mean, now we live in an era where I'm finding that younger people aren't even always getting married. There's a lot of really interesting relationship structures out there. So mm -hmm. I would say that I'm really curious and sort of deconstructing, but I absolutely have had to work with my sense of, I don't do relationships the way people who stay married for 50 or 60 years do, or 72 in my grandparents' case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'm seeing yeah. that you don't identify with that. Like you're divorced, but you don't view that as a failure. Is that what I'm hearing? I, I'm very happily divorced. I have a great relationship with my ex-husband and I love him. And I think he's a great guy and I, I love talking to him. It's just, yeah. we are not, we are not uh, married to each other anymore. Yeah. So why not? Um, Explain it to this self-pressed social brain. Isn't that all <laughs> that it's about? Uh, we, you know, if I probably, if I were self-pressed dominant, we probably would have still been married because he was, uh, uh, he was solving all my problems in the world. I was, he was like a brick wall. You know, he always took care of me. He took care of everything that needed to be taken care of. And, uh, uh, when I got divorced, I was so lost in space. Mm -hmm. It was such a scary moment for me because I didn't, I didn't even know how to open a bank account. Well, why did you divorce him? Like what was missing? Well, I think I I was sort of waking up to to who I am. I think I did spend most of my life uh, sort of asleep as a as a good nine, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then I started dancing salsa, started meeting people, and uh, just all of a sudden my life was uh, much more sparkly and uh, exciting. And he uh, he had his own interests and he started going to Russia and he got a, a very lucrative job in Russia and uh, we didn't do well. So he went together. to Russia and you stayed here. Mm -hmm. And you're this like sparkly sexual nine salsa dancer. And so we can just mm -hmm. leave it to the imagination of the audience to think what happens then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but what's super interesting to me is that you and your husband at the time you know, he's in Russia, you're here, you both just sort of allowed yourself to explore sexually. And it wasn't really something you guys felt the need to talk about. Is is that what I heard when we were talking? We did not discuss it. Yeah. And uh, 
I think both of us had our reasons for uh, not discussing it. Uh, me, obviously, because I didn't want to rock the boat. And I think for him, uh, this whole topic is very painful. Yeah. And he doesn't like to be in that vulnerable space. Yeah. And you mentioned that there was an op- a, a time when you saw your husband get a bit possessive when a friend who you were not romantically involved with was spending the night, but that was pretty triggering for him. Yeah, that was years before. This was uh, uh, way before our divorce. And actually, at that time, I thought we were going to get divorced because things got really heated up. Um, So a friend did stay overnight, and uh, uh, I was not telling my husband that that was happening because I knew he was not going to like it. And when he found out, he he wanted to kill him. And then he told me not to to see the man ever again, Um, even though it was not... uh, We've never had sex or anything like that. So that time, I thought we were definitely getting a divorce. And then things, somehow, we were able to repair things. Yeah. Which is why that, that last time, uh, I we didn't get divorced sooner. Because things were kind of falling apart. We were just like not together in in a way that I would like to be with a, with a partner. Yeah. And uh, I kept thinking, you know, it happened once before and this is just the stage and it's going to it's going to change. Yeah. So I the reason that I'm curious is just because I've done a lot of, you know, talk about the nine three relationship and I totally resonate with you with this whole idea around. Yeah, I'm not going to bring it up because it might be problematic for the attachment which I think that three sixes and nines were very conscious of the attachment. So until we're certain that we no longer want that attachment anymore, it can sometimes be hard to bring things up that are hard to talk about. Is, is that how it is for you? It is still hard to bring things up even when I'm not, uh, I'm not even that attached to keep in the relationship. It is still very difficult. Yeah. Uh, but now I'm aware of it and uh, I can still choose to uh, to bring something up. Yeah. But there was a time in my life where uh, it was like a death sentence. Like I could not bring something up with a partner, even things that are simple that would potentially create uh, a divide between the two of us. Absolutely. You know, I think being a three is interesting because we're an assertive type. So when it comes to meeting an objective or a goal or like executing on a project, Mm -hmm. we can be very outspoken and quite pushy when it comes to our agenda. But specifically as a sexual blind three, I would say that the attachment with a partner can be a lot more challenging and I will be more likely to just swallow something and not say something about it until I'm flooding. And then once I'm flooding, it's like I'm really angry and I have a one fix. So there's like a lot of judgment and blame. And um, that can be, yeah, it's, it's really unpleasant. Like, I don't like it when it's coming out of me. And I don't think my partners like it either. But the attachment, it's really important. And then one, right after I do that, it's almost like the pressure got built up. And now I want to make it better. So that whole repair aspect is really important too. And I just think that attachment types experience all of this a little bit different 
than the rejection and the frustration types. So your husband as a rejection type, when he's hurt or upset, I'm imagining that he might've put up some walls or sort of withdrew or pulled away from you in some ways. Did yeah, that for sure. ever happen? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And I would go after him because I wanted a resolution. You know, yeah. I wanted, I wanted that confirmation that we're still okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that would just make him pull away more. Yeah. Ugh. I'm just experiencing like a little contraction in my chest because that whole, like my attachment type gets anxious and wants to have security in the attachment. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing that with a rejection type and they've been hurt and they're just now kind of shutting down and shutting you out, it can feel like there's no access point. Was it like that for mm -hmm. you? Yeah. 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 It can be really hard. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. It's very difficult. Uh, I mean, now, now I see these patterns and I actually had, um, I went on a trip with a girlfriend and uh, we had a conflict and she walked away and I recognized my desire to like run after her and uh, explain and get the resolution. You know, we're not a couple, you know, this is not like anything like that, but the, the desire to go after the person and resolve the conflict is just so strong. Yeah. So instead I sat down and uh, started meditating. And yeah. she went for a walk and then she came back and then uh, we we were just able to have a normal conversation and uh, each one of us got what we needed in the moment. Oh. And we were able to resolve the conflict without me. Like I could just feel myself like needing to go after her and explain and, uh, you know, yeah. repair. Mm -hmm. I resonate with that a lot. Um, I'm going to direct listeners to the latest uh, Big Hormone Enneagram podcast on rejection types. And there's another Enneagram teacher, Courtney Smith, who is on that episode. And she described as a type six, this attachment stuff can actually feel like tentacles that come out of you and like want to just grab and penetrate the other. And it's this like very body-based thing. So for any attachment types that are listening, and some people think that we make up an inordinate amount of populations. So that can be a body sensation to just check in on. And it's something that I'm really practicing being increasingly mindful of because with a two wing, there's like that extra invasiveness that can come out of me. So to just notice like when I am in that space and to hold my seat, to be able to sit with it, to be able to hold it, that feels like a really important growth point for any of us that struggle with that. Yeah, that's great. That's very helpful. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. So, all right. After you and your husband ended up uncoupling, and I'm just curious, um, I'm so thrilled to hear that things are really lovely and it sounds like you co-parent and you have a partnership and a friendship that um, is really sweet. Was it like that when you were splitting or was it pretty dicey for a while? Like how did that transition happen? I don't remember it ever being dicey, but okay. we were we were a little bit more distant. I, I mean, he had, um, as far as I know, he had a girlfriend and he never wanted to mention her to me. Yeah. Um, the kids knew her. And, uh, then there was a time when I had a boyfriend and he had a girlfriend. I, I think this was, we were probably, we were already divorced at that time. And, uh, I offered him to, 
to get to introduce our partners to each other. And yeah. he didn't want any of it. Okay. He never ever mentioned his other relationships or his partners. He never ever talks about that with me. Yeah. So and, there's uh, again the attachment type wanting to say, let's just be a bigger yeah. tribe. Like we can yeah. all be happy. And there's that rejection right. type that's like, <laughs> hell no, we won't go. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. like, no, that's not happening. So mm -hmm. that's really interesting to see. Yeah. And so you guys, you just kind of accepted that and you didn't have to meet her. And I assume you still haven't. No, I, I haven't. I, I don't think he's with her anymore. Okay. But it was just like, whatever he's doing personally, he didn't want you to be a part of, you were yeah. okay with mm -hmm. it. So you guys mm -hmm. connect around what he's okay connecting around and call it a day. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And you guys really didn't start splitting until your children were almost adults, right? Yes. Yeah. One, one was in college and the other one was uh, already graduated. Yeah. So, you know, just kind of reflecting on my own experience, unfortunately for my ex-husband and I, we were like, you and your ex-husband for about six years until he entered a partnership with somebody new. And then there was this, my whole attitude was, well, our kids are little, like, let's, you know, just expand the family structure and bring her on in. And they wanted to have a lot of separateness and mm -hmm. wanted to also take my kids kind of with them. So whereas we used to always do holidays together because he's a nine. So, yeah. you know, we did a lot of things together still just as like a bigger family tribe. So mm -hmm. I noticed a lot of mama bear energy come up in me when he was now wanting to have boundaries and separateness and take the kids alone on very special occasions and that mm -hmm. activated a lot of stuff. So we weren't really able to meet each other in a place that worked for his new partner and for me. So mm -hmm. it's, it's been problematic and we'll see what happens, right? We never know, yeah. but, mm -hmm. um, sometimes things get a little fiery for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then you ended up with a second partner. Will you tell us a little bit about that relationship? Uh, well, that relationship was very uh, tumultuous. I can't say okay. the word. <laughs> How did you guys meet? Uh, we met salsa dancing. Okay. And uh, it was very, uh, like a very passionate relationship. And it felt like we had a really, really strong connection, like a soulmate connection. Yeah. And then after four, four and a half years uh, together, we were not living together, um, but uh, he spent overnight in my uh, with me quite a bit. You know, we traveled together. He's he had his own house. Um, I found out that uh, he uh, had been living with uh, another woman that, that whole time. Actually, when when he met me, uh, he just bought a house with that woman. Okay. So that was a completely soul crashing moment for me. Yeah. Um, how many nights did he spend at your house typically a week? Um, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes maybe two, three. Yeah. Wow. Sometimes okay. maybe less, sometimes more. I don't know. So he really um, figured out how to live a double life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he had one woman that he lived with and had bought a home with, and then he had you for four years that he mm -hmm. would travel with, that he'd be with multiple nights a week. And you really had no idea. Mm-hmm. Well, part of it was my laziness because uh, he um, 
his home was uh, like an hour and a half away from from where I live, and I don't like to drive. So yeah. I was just very happy that he comes to me. I don't have to go there. Yeah. Um, I guess I guess we see what we want to see, and we ignore things that are. Yeah. That may be obvious. I had a friend who was who kept telling me that uh, things are uh, not what they seem. Yeah. And uh, like I shared with you before, there was a time when I asked him and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, uh, no, there is nobody else. Yeah. Mm. So that was super painful. And uh, and then uh, he told me that he loves us both and he wants the three of us to be together. Yeah. Um, and I, being the sexual nine that I am, I was like, well, let's meet her. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So um, I met the, the uh, his other partner, and what surprised me was that we were very much alike in a lot of in a lot of ways. Huh. And that was very strange to me because I'm like thinking if I chose to be in a relationship with two guys or whatever, I would choose two different ones. <laughs> yeah, I would too, hundred percent. Right? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So I'm like, why, why choose uh, two women who are I, obviously we're not the same, you know, and right. everybody's uh, is different. Uh, but we were both like, uh, uh, so I'm Russian. She's Greek. Um, uh, she's also in the medical field. Uh, we're both into yoga and spiritual stuff. That's and so it's just like so many, so many. Uh, did you like common... her? I did. Yeah, she yeah. was very nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah. what happened after this meetup? Um. I, you know, I, I kept thinking about, uh, about it and about, uh, polyamory and about the idea of, uh, loving somebody without possessing them. And that idea is very, uh, I, I love the idea that you can love somebody and not, uh, you know, allow them to be who they are. Yeah. Allowing him to, to love more than one woman, you know, allow him to be with another person if that's what makes him happy you yeah. know and uh the more i thought about it the more i don't know if i'm just not spiritually evolved enough but it was just not gonna work for me yeah i felt super jealous super angry and uh and very unhappy with it um also and it's interesting because you didn't have jealousy or anger for the four years you didn't know but once right. you knew now it wasn't okay anymore no. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not usually very jealous. Right. But that's not something that it happens very rarely. Right. But I was imagining the three of us living in the same, uh, in the same space. Yeah. Whatever that arrangement was going to be. And I could not uh, imagine myself just being okay with uh, the men I love, uh, having sex with another woman. Yeah. Mm, it was not going to work for me. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, I'm really interested to get all these different stacks online. Um, there is something about the sexual instinct that I think is jealous and possessive. Um, I don't think I'm particularly jealous and possessive. You know, my ex-husband and I had an open marriage for two years. I think the issue was that if I got more like expressed delight, like more attention, more engagement from him, I might have been okay with it, but I sometimes felt like he was pretty dissociated from our life at home. And I used to make the joke that 
I could have like swapped out a robot version of me that, you know, wasn't really my personality, but as long as it took care of the house and connected with him and took care of the kids, like I wasn't really sure if he would notice if it was me or not. Like I mm-hmm. didn't really feel like there was that kind of connection. Mm-hmm. So if there had been that kind of connection where I felt really seen and known, I don't know, because like when he ended up with his current fiance, I really, really loved the idea of her being around and like us all having the holiday together. Now, I wasn't sexually involved with my ex-husband anymore, and that wasn't important to Mm -hmm. me, but it just seemed like for her, my presence was so upsetting that she really needed to have really strong walls and Mm -hmm. not have him in my orbit at all anymore, which I think is that sexual dominance. Whereas for me, from a self-pressed social standpoint, it just makes sense that you expand the tribe. And, you know, I did this interview with Drew, who is self-pressed blind, and I think he's social dominant, but he's still got sexual pretty high up in his stack. And it's really interesting because even though both of us are dating, he absolutely wants to stay in nine land about anything I'm doing. You know, he doesn't want to hear about a date I might have or anybody that I might meet. Like I could literally be living with another person and buying a house with them and he just wouldn't want to know. So, you know, in order to honor that, you know, I just wouldn't share that with him. Now, the other direction in the beginning, I wanted to know everything. And he found that to be uncomfortable because he Mm -hmm. just didn't really want to talk about it. It's like, he's like, when we're together, let's just pretend it's just us and like nothing else exists. And I'll tell you because I don't want to be a liar and I don't want to deceive you, but it's just so uncomfortable for me to talk about it. I wish you wouldn't ask. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, um, I really needed to know. And as time has gone on, I just realized that I actually don't. And you know, our time together is so nice that it's more around negotiating how much togetherness and how much separateness do we have? Because I have a little bit more of the anxious attachment style where I move in a little bit more and Mm -hmm. he is a little bit more protective of his space. Like I can totally sense how that body center, that autonomy and choice is a bigger thing than for a heart-centered person where I think that connection, even though nines are attachment types, they also have their withdrawn types and they're part of the body center. So I just sense that you guys have some boundaries that are a little bit different than, you know, I think that the heart-centered people are pretty mushy and together and the head-centered people, I don't know, I'm still trying to figure them out. Do you have any thoughts about that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about attachment no i actually i have not thought about it uh, in the uh in the way of the enneagram um i just know that uh, i tend to go after after my partners and yeah. uh a lot of times they will be pulling away and i will go after them that's my tendency you know yeah yeah interesting yeah i was with a seven um with an eight wing and he had a more anxious attachment style. So with him, I would sometimes be avoidant, but with my nines, they're withdrawn. 
So, you know, for me, it was like the difference between the assertive energy of the seven that kind of felt like it was coming after me. And I would do this kind of weird attachment to disconnect kind of thing where, um, I really wanted the connection, but if it was too much, I would kind of push away a little bit. Whereas with my nines who were withdrawn, I'm always the one moving in and it feels like they're just fog. And when they don't want connection, they disappear and I'm just trying to find them and I can't quite connect. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, this second partner was a three. So clearly he had the deceit thing down since he was managing to lie directly to your face and you didn't know that he was living with another woman for four years. Um, what did you like about well, being with a three, though? Like, what was there, that nine three? There's something there, isn't it? You there liked is it. definitely something there, yes. Um, I want to tell you how, uh, how when I discovered the Enneagram, I was with the three. Okay. And I was uh, so into it. I was just like, I couldn't stop reading the books, you know, and I, yeah. I kept asking him to take the test and he wouldn't like, it just wasn't interesting to him. And I would just like follow him into the bathroom with the book because I just found the paragraph. <laughs> that I, was, <laughs> I love it. I couldn't yeah. help myself. <laughs> totally. Um, and at first I thought he was a four because uh, he kind of liked to dress like uh, uh, sort of, he had like a dress style that was a little different. And he really cared about what he looked like and how he was dressed. And then he was a photographer. So there was like this artistic side to him. And then he uh, always talked about this sort of him being different and having like a dark secret, which, you know, we found out what his dark secret was. Um, So when I first just learned about the Enneagram, I thought he probably is a four because all of these things just seemed like it's a four. But it's, it just felt very surfacy. And then I was reading about three and all of a sudden it was just like, uh, I always have this experience when you realize somebody's type, it's just like everything falls into place. You know, you just see it, you know? Yeah. What fell and into place? I don't know. I just, I just uh, could see his, uh, how important success was for him, how efficient he was, uh, uh at things. And how making an impression was uh, such such a big deal for him. Yeah. Uh, those things, I guess. And so I gave him, I had a, a Richard Dror's book uh, on the Enneagram. And, um, and he, was, uh, he was very religious. And I gave him the, the chapter to read. And he read it and there was like no expression on his face. Like yeah. nothing. Uh, what religion was, like, was he? A Christian. Like which, which type of Christianity? Oh, I don't know much about it. <laughs> was he like, when you said he was very religious, was he like evangelical, like very conservative, like Jesus Christ is my savior and, you know, kind of very, um, there's, there's aspects of Christianity that I would say are more liberal and there are aspects that are more conservative. And when I talk about evangelical Christianity, it's the type of Christianity where like you have to agree that Christ is your savior or you don't have salvation. Whereas Mm. I think that some Christians all believe in Jesus. That's what it's about, but there's less rigidity around having to sort of claim your faith. Like what, what about him did you observe that made you think he was very religious? Well, he always, he always talked about Jesus and there was a time in his life when he, he played music in the church and he, uh, uh, at some point, I think he was one of those people who enrolls people to, to come to Jesus. 
Okay. Which yeah. he was, of course, very successful at. <laughs> okay. So that's a little more the missionary type. Like, mm -hmm. I want to, you know, come accept Christ as your savior. So I would say that that is uh, more in the ev evangelical basically means I think it's my responsibility to pull other people into the church. It's not necessarily something that's just important to me. So it sounds like he was good at that. I, I, he was good at that, but I don't know if that was something that was really important to him or he was in the environment where that was right. valued and that's what he felt like he needed to do. Of course, yeah. Because at the time when I knew him, I, he personally believed in, uh, in Jesus and he had yeah. uh, certain beliefs, but I don't think he felt the need to convert others. How did he reconcile his strong Christian faith with, you know, because I think that sex only within marriage and, you know, not committing adultery or infidelity is really important to Christian people. So how did he reconcile that? I think his first, his marriage, yeah, I think he was married uh, to a woman where they did not have sex until marriage. Okay which is really mind-boggling to me. Well, that's the evangelical Christian church. That's a big deal right. to not have sex but before I, marriage. I don't know how he reconciled because uh, there was there was a lot of stuff going on that uh, probably Jesus would not approve of. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's classic average three. Like classic mm -hmm. average three, you're lying to yourself, actually. Mm -hmm. Like you, you actually believe. I always struggled with that. Um, I don't know. That's sort of the time I thought I was an eight because I, when I would sense that disharmony within myself, it's really, really challenging for me. So at times I almost err on the side of being overly honest, like overly revealing just because it feels, well, when, what it is, as I'm talking about it, is that I totally identify with that chameleon aspect and that ability to sell people on things. And it mm -hmm. actually scares me. There are patients that will come into my office and they're giving my medical assistants like such a hard time or my nurse practitioner. They're like, hell no, like, I'm not going to do this. Like they're just kind of all locked down. And mm -hmm. I just kind of like walk in the room and I just start talking and, you know, I've had patients tell me that I'm a master of the art of Irish diplomacy. And mm -hmm. I was like, what is that? And he's like, somehow you just know how to tell me how to go to hell. And I'm actually running home, excited to pack my suitcase and make the trip. It's mm -hmm. like, I just have this way with people yeah. that... I sort of get them to do what I want them to do. And that's actually mm -hmm. scary because it feels that Spider-Man quote with great power comes great responsibility. Yes. If you mm -hmm. recognize that you can actually shape shift in a way that people um, are going to follow, it's all mm -hmm. of a sudden like, whoa, I really want to make sure I'm in alignment with where I think I'm taking them. And mm -hmm. even in this platform where I've noticed that there's a lot of discordance around how people view the instinctual drives and do we have a stack? Are they, you know, how do we talk about this and what does it mean? Um, it feels really important that all the voices are heard and that I don't come across as some enlightenment expert when I'm just kind of figuring this all out myself. And yet mm -hmm. at the same time, I know that I have a really deep longing to heal. And the whole thing we talked about around 
viewing my intimate relationships as failures, you know, I want to heal. I want to, I want to really investigate like what's broken inside of me so that I can come back to essence and that oneness and that wholeness. And I really, really want to meet other people. And I'm noticing I don't even like that word broken because I just want to more call it humanity. Like I think that we're all suffering with something and it's just about how to be there at that edge. But I do think it takes a lot of courage to be honest because when we're honest, we're often going to have people not like what we say. And so now we either have to navigate staying in connection or we have to accept that disconnection happens and that we might face abandonment and we might face uh, being alone. So I do have a lot of compassion for my fellow threes because if you've been given this superpower of deceit, it might be really easy to just fall back on that because being honest is actually a lot scarier and a lot harder. What do you think yeah. when you hear me say that? Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, and it is a great power. Like uh, my boyfriend, he uh, he created his own business and he was uh, enrolling people to, he needed clients, like high high paying clients. Yeah. And he would go to, to offices and he would just get people to sign up. And he's like, I don't understand it. I'm trying to get other people to do this job so that I can, you know, be the business owner and focus on other things. But nobody else can do that. Yeah. Like I, I, I go in and I get people to sign up. Yes. Like, why can't other people do that? Yeah. And I have seen him uh, do that to me. You know, sometimes I am sure that some the situation is is wrong. Like something needs to be uh, changed or whatever. And he'll just have a conversation with me and it's always like a heart to heart. And I'd be like, Oh, wow. Yeah. He's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's almost embarrassing. It's almost embarrassing how well I can make my arguments. And so mm -hmm. for me, my work is to always remember that even when I am drinking my own Kool-Aid, believing my own bullshit, mm -hmm. like I think that that's where threes get in trouble is when we lose the ability to say, this is just my perspective, my story, my lens. And can I open up to seeing things that I might not want to see? Because we only lie to ourselves because it's really painful to look at the truth. Mm. And that's where I think nines and threes are amazing because we have this superpower of avoiding the truth or the hard things, mm -hmm. you know, nines can mm -hmm. kind of float away from it and threes can spin a great story that mm -hmm. everybody will believe. So in some ways we play each other's game, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, it can be destructive because if the nine's not going to look and the three is going to keep believing their own bullshit, then, you know, you can get yourself in a little bit of trouble, I think. Yeah. I, I want to share that uh, with my ex-boyfriend. I have seen his greatness as well. You know, as much as, I mean, the, creating his own business was also his uh, uh, his power. But I, I have seen him speak uh, in front of uh, people, inspiring them yeah. and showing them how anything is possible. You know, speaking to yes. kids in his son's class, you know, talking yeah. to them about, how you can you can create the business that you want you can create the future that you want yes and uh, anything is possible like i did it you know being being that star that shows people the way 
Yeah. That was very powerful. Yeah, I mean, I really resonate with that. I mean, mm -hmm. I started my own medical practice when my kids were three, five, seven, and 12. <laughs> and I was just like, really disillusioned with Western medicine and the, you know, mm. way that I was practicing. And, you know, everybody was like, selling out and going to work for corporate medicine. And I'm like, No, you don't have to do that. You don't have to compromise your ideals like you can do this. And yeah, here I am, 11 years later, after having started my own medical practice, I have the best employees, I've been taking care of the same group of patients for 20 years. And I meet so many disillusioned physicians who aren't really enjoying the environment in which they're practicing in. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, go create what you want. And there's so much fear out there. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I just really do love inspiring people. Like when mm -hmm. you go to that core essence quality of three, which is, you know, value. Yeah. I mean, I see the amazing potential in every single human I meet, even if they're at a place where they're really suffering and they're not seeing their own greatness. And it is so painful for me to see somebody else missing what's so wonderful about them. Yeah. And I really, really have an amazing day when I just see somebody stepping into their own power. It just is so wonderful for me. Mm -hmm. And one of the podcasters that I love, his name is um, Pete Rollins. And he has, if you Google like the last guru, that really resonated with me because I'm a three with a two wing. It's sometimes nicknamed the life coach. There are a lot of people out there who will say, oh, Dr. Nance, you changed my life. And I get a little embarrassed mm -hmm. when I hear people say that, mm -hmm. but I really am fine with people kind of plugging into me and taking my faith yes. for themselves to use. Mm -hmm. But I hope I can be their last guru because at mm -hmm. the end of the day, we all contain this power within ourselves. And once we plug into it, that's where I feel that huge chest centered yellow glow that just enables each of us to be I'm thinking, I'm so cheesy. I'm thinking that this little light of mine, I'm uh -huh. going to let it shine. I mean, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cringing. I mean, I'm, I'm so dorky, but like, I love that's it. what it feels like. It just feels like we all have this light and mm -hmm. it's big and it's powerful and it's bright. And I sometimes feel like I'm with patience and I'm just kind of like blowing on their flame and giving it some oxygen until it can glow and burn on their own. And that's literally my best day is when people just don't need me anymore. And I might not see them for five years. And I'm just like, Oh, I'm so great. Great to hear that you're doing so well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. Would you share how you're working with your blind spot? You said you're self-pressed blind. So, um, and it sounds like when you and your husband first separated, that was really hard for you. I'd love to hear how you've been working on that. And I mean, here you are starting your own company, shifting your career. I mean, it's so exciting to just see you connecting with your high side of three. And yeah, I can't wait to see what you do. So how'd you get there? Inspire those nines out there that are feeling a little stuck. Ah, yeah. So when, when I first got uh, got divorced, I had uh, absolutely no idea how to create any kind of structure in my life, how to uh, new registration on my car, how to rent an apartment, like nothing. 
And uh, opening a bank account was like a big deal. Like I remember just like shaking, entering the bank. It was just, just, just so crazy, so scary. Um, I had to really pay attention to, to what I'm doing. And then uh, uh, I even started investing, which was also like such, such a scary thing for me. And uh, I built, um, I was able to save up quite a bit of money because I was hoping to buy something, but now I actually left my job and started my own business. So, so what I saved is, uh, is sustaining me at this moment. <laughs> so creating those structures was very helpful and, uh, now, now supporting my, my sexual instincts so that I can explore and try new things. Yeah. Um, but it was uh, every step of the way. It was very, very scary. Very, uh, it was felt very unstable. Yeah. Well, I, I just love it. I especially love watching women step into their power. I just think that it can be very easy to sort of be in that caretaking, nurturing role and allow your husband to take care of a lot of these things. And just seeing you in this place of empowerment and being a business owner and building your own thing. I just want to thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story and recognizing that, you know, the path from A to Z is not necessarily a straight one. And we all have our stories and our color and our celebrations and our heartbreaks. And I just feel so grateful that you were willing to come on today and be so open and so honest. And yeah, big gratitude. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I, I just want to make a um, correction because I am uh, doing wellness coaching. So it's Enneagram informed, but I, my main focus is uh, wellness. Oh, great. So, Thank you. So what would be your ideal client? Like, I just want to give you an opportunity, like, as you're imagining, like, who should reach out to you? What are you looking for? I think my, uh, my biggest interest right now is uh, a midlife transition. Uh, how we navigate that part of our life, yeah. where we're kind of taking stock of where we are, you know, thinking if the career is fulfilling, if something needs to change. Uh, if our health is where it needs to be, if uh, you know things that we were able to do in our twenties are now not so okay, you know yeah. maybe looking looking to create uh, some changes in lifestyle to be able to enjoy this life. Well, when I hear you talk about that, that sounds like you're going to be doing a ton of blind spot work with people, because in my experience, you know, we live our lives the way that we live our lives, and then around midlife is when we start to recognize the consequences of not attending to the blind spot. So it mm -hmm. sounds like you're going to be working with a ton of people that are now at midlife that are ready to integrate that blind spot. And you're going to be able to use that beautiful nine energy to make that transition just a little bit easier for people. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Mm, thank you, Natalie. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, 
nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.